Brad Hanna. Hey. Uh, if you'd be so kind, fellow students, turn to chapter 12 of Revelation. We're going to be in the second half of chapter 12, which interestingly marks the second half of the book of Revelation, as well as marking the midpoint of the tribulation. Remember, the great tribulation lasts seven years, and we are now at about 3.5 years into this. Last week, we did the first half of chapter uh, 12, which revealed the long war between Satan and the nation of Israel, uh, which gave birth to the Messiah. Now in, in uh, chapter 12, verse uh, 7, we are starting to shift from earth to heaven. And uh, it talks about a war in heaven. You know, war in heaven seems almost like an oxymoron. Heaven is not a place that we typically associate with conflict or violence. Heaven's usually a place we think is very peaceful and restful. We expect war on earth to be kind of the normal state of affairs. I read uh, this week that uh, it's by roughly 6,000 years of recorded history, there's been some 14,531 wars. And uh, Will Durant in the book, The Lessons of History, estimates in the last 3,400 years, there's only been peace 268 years. So 92% of the time, humans are killing each other, right? Warfare is pretty normal uh, for us. Matter of fact, in the year 2000 alone, there were 40 different armed conflicts fought in 36 countries, and that's only 15 years ago. I don't think it's probably gotten any better. So Earth is habitually a place of conflict and warfare. Now, the origin of all the conflict on Earth, of course, is conflict in heaven. Last week, we learned that sometime prior to the fall of man, Satan had attempted a coup. A treason in heaven, and Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, as you recall, record some of the details for us. Let me just review a couple of things. Number one, remember that Satan, like everything else and everyone else, is a created being. There is an infinite gap between the creator and everything else, which is the creation. God and Satan are not equals. I will talk to people and they'll say, well, God and Satan are battling it out. No, 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 we're not talking equals. God is creator, Satan is creation. There's an infinite gap between those two. You and I are creatures. There's only how many creators? One, one creator. God is completely unique. He is absolutely one of a kind. So Satan is a created being and he's an angel. Now, just background information, there seems to be three ranks of angels in the Bible. This is not a course on angelology, but I want to give you a context before we dive into verse 7. The first rank of angels in Scripture seems to be the unnamed angels that function as messengers and servants of God. They are always seen before the throne of God. Before the throne of God, Michael seems to be their archangel, seems to be over them. They serve God's people and serve God as messengers primarily. The second rank of angels are called seraphim. They have six wings and they are around God's throne. So the vast mass of angels are before God's throne. The seraphim are closer to the throne. They're around the throne. They have six wings, as you recall from Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, and they, their job is to proclaim the holiness of God. That's what the seraphim do. The third rank of angels, those closest to the throne, are called cherubim, and they are always seen under God's throne, almost as a support mechanism, and you'll see that in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. So the notion here is, the closer to the throne, the higher the rank of angel. You have the unnamed angels, you have the seraphim, and you have the cherubim. Now it's important that you understand that Satan was and is a cherubim. Ezekiel 28 describes Satan as the anointed cherub that covers Anointed means that Satan was created as one of the angels closest to God. And at some point in his past, God anointed him. God elevated Satan to the point of highest authority of all the created beings. So he was the anointed cherub that covered. He was the canopy over. He was the roof over the canopy over the throne of God. You ever seen a throne with a, a roof over the top? or a, a great uh, uh, king-size bed with a canopy over the top. It's that kind of a, a, a picture in your mind, if you will, at that point. So he actually was over the throne of God compared to all the other cherubim that were under the throne of God. So he was elevated at some point in the past to be the ruling angel in heaven. He was responsible to guard the throne of God, and apparently he was also heaven's worship leader, head of the choir, and he was the prime minister. But, as you recall from Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, Satan was not content to cover the throne of God. He wanted to sit 
on the throne of God, right? He was not content to lead the worship of heaven. He wanted to receive the worship of heaven. He still, to this day, craves to be worshiped as God. That's what motivates him. He wants to be God. So, as you remember, he led a revolt in heaven. One third of all of heaven's angels followed him in his mutiny. As a result, God deposed him from his position above the throne and terminated his job as prime minister. Now, you also recall that Genesis 1, 2, and 3, 1 and 2 talk about the creation. And when God created Adam, he told him to do what? Have dominion over the earth. Means he was the ruler of planet earth. He was to manage the planet under the authority of the owner. Who's the owner? God. God's the creator. He said, I want you to be the steward of the planet. You are to manage that. Who heard God command Adam to have dominion? Satan, Satan heard that. Do you think Satan's a little paranoid? A little jealous? Yeah. You want to know where the green-eyed monster came from? Right there. So Satan's not stupid. He, he, he was successful in, in, in talking and persuading one-third of the angels to follow him against God. He's got somewhat of a force now, right? He figures, let's go after humanity. So what does he do? He shows up at the Garden of Eden and what? Deceives Adam and Eve into rebelling against God. So now they have joined his war as well. So we've got fallen angels and we've got fallen humanity allied with Satan in their war against God. So Satan has lost his position in heaven. He's no longer prime minister. He's lost his residence in heaven. He doesn't live in heaven anymore. But Ephesians 2, 2 tells us that he is the prince of the powers of the air. Prince of the powers of the air. Which means he is the leader of the fallen demonic forces who live in the atmosphere around planet Earth. Okay? Remember that. So the earth is literally surrounded by an evil spiritual atmosphere populated by evil beings. That's his domain. That's his dominion. You need to understand that Satan does have access into heaven. He doesn't live there, but he has access. Remember Job 1 and 2? What does it say? God says to Satan, he knows where he's been, but God says, where have you been? You know, Satan, Satan says, well, I've been wandering around on the earth. And by the way, that Job guy, blah, blah, blah. So we know that he goes to heaven on a regular basis to accuse God's people. But we also know he has access to planet earth because John 12, 31 says that Satan is the ruler of this world. When Adam and Eve sinned, they terminated their dominion over the planet and gave the contract to Satan. That's part of the fall of man. We now have Satan governing this planet. Under God's authority, God owns everything. God isn't falling off his throne. He's still in charge. He's allowing this to occur. And Jesus told us in Luke 4, verses 5 to 8, that Satan has been handed over all the kingdoms of this world as a result of Adam and Eve's treason. Now, we know that Satan has access to heaven. He doesn't live there. He doesn't have his position anymore. He has access to earth and the heavenly places, but there's one place he's never been, and that's hell. Despite popular opinion, Satan has never been to hell. Would you volunteer to go there if you didn't have to? Of course not. Satan's not going to go there until he has to. He's never going to choose to go to the lake of fire. He's going to be thrown into the lake of fire contrary to his will. And by the way, contrary to popular opinion, Satan will never be in charge of hell. You have to understand, when he gets thrown into the lake of fire, he's going to occupy the lowest place in the lake of fire, the most tormented place. He will go from the pinnacle height to the lowest depth. No one will ask his opinion in hell about what he thinks. He's going to be in the lowest spot in the greatest form of punishment because he sinned having access to God himself, right? So I'll give you an idea, just a background. Now here's the key idea. Satan's war against God was lost before it began. The creature's never going to conquer the creator. Okay, let's get that clear. But Satan will keep fighting until God puts an end to sin. You know, when you talk to people, they say, well, why would, if Satan knows all this is going to happen, why doesn't he just give up? I mean, that would be the rational thing to do, right? What have we said in this class for years? Sin makes you stupid. It does. How many of you have made dumb decisions under the moniker of pride? Now, most of our decisions are dumb when we're proud, right? So he's the ultimate in pride. He said five times, I will, right? So he's deluded. The, the, the number one thing that Satan has deceived, he's deceived himself. He's completely self-deceived. Okay, jump into verse 7. 
And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waged war. So now we're moving into heaven, and there's war in heaven. And remember, we said Satan's already defeated, but he is going to fight. And now, heaven itself becomes a battleground. Up until now, Satan's gone there to accuse the brethren, but there's no warfare. Now there's open warfare in heaven. When you look at the Greek grammar here, it seems to indicate that the war in heaven was triggered, was initiated by Satan. He's the one who started it, and now Michael and the angels are drawn into that battle. Interesting question. If there's a battle in heaven, what triggered the battle? Provocative question. I read a, I've read quite a number of commentaries. Marin knows the stack is getting higher on the desk. One very provocative suggestion by very, very significant conservative biblical scholars like Henry Morris and, and uh, John MacArthur is that the rapture of the church was the triggering event for the war in heaven. Yeah, I understand. This war hasn't happened either. This is future. The war in heaven is not yet. The war in heaven is future, chronologically for most. We're not there right now. There's no war in heaven right now, but there will be. So when the church is raptured, what do they pass through? The atmosphere. Who's the prince of the power of the air? Whose domain does the church, raptured church go through? Satan's domain. Interesting. Has Satan always tried to thwart God's plans every chance he gets? So is there a high probability he will try and thwart this one as well? Given his history, I would suggest that Satan's probably going to try and hinder the rapture of the church from occurring. We know that Satan's forces can hinder, not stop, but hinder God's angels because Daniel 10, if you want to cross-reference, Daniel 10, 9, tells us that a demon, the prince of the Persia, hindered one of God's angels from going to Daniel to give him a message for 21 days. God's angel was unable to deliver God's message to Daniel because he was engaged in a 21-day spiritual battle with a demon who was dispatched by Satan to stop that from occurring. Remember, God was going to tell Daniel the exact day of the coming of the Messiah. Daniel 9, 25, 27. Obviously, Satan didn't want that in the prophetic record, so Israel would not know when their Messiah was going to show up. So he sent an angel to encounter this angel from God, and the angel told Daniel, I've been fighting with the prince of Persia for 21 days, and we were still fighting until Michael the archangel showed up to help me, and we conquered him, and I got through and gave you this message. Jude 9 calls Michael the archangel. Interesting, he calls him the archangel. I don't know where that's singular, but there's a high probability he's one of a kind. It's interesting that 1 Thessalonians 4, if you're looking for an interesting cross-check on the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4 is one of the chapters, 1 Corinthians 15 is another for those of you who want to do your homework on that. He describes the rapture and he says, The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. Interesting question. Do you think that archangel could be Michael? There's only one listed that may be Michael who's shouting. And the interesting question is, why would the warrior Michael be shouting at the rapture? I don't know the answer to that. But it's interesting, he might be involved in demonic battle or battle with the demonic forces that are trying to thwart the rapture. So it's an interesting, provocative thought. I certainly am not going to drive a stake in the sand on it, but there's a number of very solid scholars who would say that. So leads us to the next question. Who is Michael? The name Michael means who is like God. If you want to break this down, me, M-I, means who. He, K-I, is as or like. Who, as, who, like. L, E-L, is God. Who is like God? So this question, who is like God, expects and demands a negative response. There is no one like God. He has an exclusive on Godhood. Interesting that the battle in heaven is between the angel Satan who five times in Isaiah 14 said what? I will be like God. And who's his opponent? Michael, who says, there is no one like God. Interesting. Yeah, that's what I said. I thought, wow, okay, the names are pretty provocative here. Now, Michael is mentioned five times in Scripture. Daniel 10, for those of you who want to know, Daniel 10 calls him one of the chief princes. Daniel 12, he's the great prince. Jude 9 labels him the archangel. Archangel, of course, means arch, means first or chief. It seems as though Michael was elevated to be the commander of the angelic host after Satan got fired from his job. 
Daniel 12, 1 says, at that time, God is now talking to Daniel, at the time of the tribulation, Michael, a great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. It seems that Michael has a special responsibility as the angelic guardian of Israel. Every time you see Michael listed in his impact with human beings, it seems to have some impact on the nation of Israel. Remember in Jude 9, for those of you who want to check this, Jude 9, Satan is in a conflict with Michael over who? The body of Moses. I don't know why Satan would want the body of Moses. He probably would want Israel to worship it, so God wanted them buried. But anyway, they're having a conflict over the body of Moses. As near as we can tell, Michael is not stronger than Satan because Michael did not get into demonic conflict with Satan at that point in time. What did he say? The Lord rebuke you, which is a very good message for us. Don't ever get into spiritual conflict under your own power or you will jump on the barbie and be roasted. Okay, don't even go there. You don't have the power to engage in demonic warfare with demons, but you call on God's power, and that's exactly what Michael did. Interesting, um, one of my favorite hymns is Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Those of you who may or may not know the words to that, the second verse says, If we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Just ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. So we have Michael gets the command from God in verse 7 and the power to kick Satan out of heaven. I'm sure he was really happy to do that, right? <laughs> I can imagine he'd been waiting to kick him out of heaven for a long time. Right? So now God says, get him out of here. So they're waging war. Now the truth of it is we really have no idea what angelic conflict looks like. Angels are spirits, but they do inhabit the physical universe, which you could spend weeks on that one. We're not going to go there. Physical forces have no impact on spiritual realities, right? A bullet or a bomb has no impact on, a, on an angel, right? You can fire a Colt 45 right at him and you know something won't even touch him. But spiritual forces do impact the physical universe. So it's an interesting world we live in at that point in time. But it says in verse 7, they're in a battle, and they, the forces of Satan, were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. Obviously, no one is stronger than God, and so victory is assured. We have that song, our God is straighter, our God is stronger, right? You know, he is higher than any other. We sing that every Sunday, or a lot of Sundays. And it says there's no longer a place found for them. So up until this point, Satan got kicked out of heaven as a prime minister. He no longer can live there. And now he no longer has access to heaven. He can't go and accuse the saints anymore. So God is slowly restricting the sphere of Satan's influence, right? He no longer is in heaven. He got kicked out of heaven. Now, we're going to find out a lot about who this adversary of ours is. If you look at verse 9, there's four different names of our ancient enemy and God's ancient enemy, and they all tell us something about him. Verse 9, and the great dragon, underline that, was thrown down. The serpent of old, underline that, who is called the, underline that, and, underline that, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, the great dragon, obviously, in ancient literature, dragons were vicious, they were voracious, they ate everything in sight, they were very cruel, they were very cunning, and that's exactly how Satan is portrayed in Scripture. He wants to devour, he wants to destroy, he wants to kill. He's great because he's the leader of everything that is anti-God. He is the ringleader of everything that's anti-God. He's also called the serpent of old. When's the first time we see the serpent in Scripture? And he's not, he's not portrayed as powerful in the Garden of Eden. He's portrayed as crafty, right? He's crafty. He's a deceiver. He lied to Adam and Eve, and they bought it. So he is viewed as the tempter or the deceiver. So the dragon is vicious and cruel. The serpent is crafty, and he's a tempter and a deceiver and a liar. He's also called the devil. Now, in the Greek word diabol, diablos means slanderer, defamer. Every time you see Satan in relationship to God's people, he is always accusing you. He is slandering you, and he's defaming your name. He's accusing God's people. 
The last name they give him is Satan, Satanus, from the Greek means adversary. And the word adversary means here an opponent in a lawsuit. So it's a legal term, and the picture is a courtroom. In the courtroom, God has indicted Satan for the sin of rebellion, of cosmic treason. God has judged him and found him guilty before the bar of judgment and sentenced him to the lake of fire. That's all been done. It hasn't been executed yet, right? The sentence hasn't been carried out. Satan's not in the lake of fire, but he has been judged by God, found guilty, and sentenced. Now, Satan is appealing this sentence. Satan is accusing God of being unfair and unjust in sentencing him to hell. So Satan is not only defending himself, he's also the prosecuting attorney in heaven, and he's accusing you and I of sin. You know what he's telling God every time? He says, you and I are unworthy of forgiveness because we're sinners. Is that true? So if God is just, then we should be sentenced to the lake of fire just like Satan was sentenced to the lake of fire. Is that true? Yep. If you're going to go by the law, all of us should be going to hell because we all sin. You know why Satan can continually accuse us? Because we continually sin. Right? I mean, there, he, we give him a lot of evidence, right? You don't have to look too far to see that. So we know that Satan, in the next phrase, he deceives the whole world. Deceives means to lead astray, to cause to wander, to mislead or delude. Humans are so prone to go astray. And I'm, I'm always the head of that line that gets off the path, right? It's very easy to do. So Jesus called Satan what? The father of lies. He's the source of all the falsehoods in the world, John 8, 44. Satan lies against the truth. Satan denies the truth. Satan counterfeits the truth. Satan distorts the truth. Satan distracts from the truth. Satan hates the truth. That's who he is. He's a liar. It says the deceiver of the brethren will be thrown down. Now that literally means to be cast, to literally be heave-hoed out of heaven, to be put down. So he's thrown out of heaven which is wonderful, but where is he thrown to? That's a problem for anybody who dwells on earth. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God. How often? Day and night. Heaven is thrilled that Satan's accusations will finally be stopped. Apparently, this voice who says, now salvation, power, and glory, kingdom of our God, is the glorified saints in heaven. The brothers and sisters we have are already in heaven, and they view this liar coming into heaven to accuse you and I for years and millennia. He's had access to heaven to accuse the brother. Job 1 shows us that. Heaven's getting tired of this, and so when he's thrown out, the saints in heaven are thrilled. My little mind goes, I wonder how long it took to clean up the mess after they got rid of that smuck. Right, you ever had relatives over to your house that are, you know, they're not really quite your standard of cleanliness? I'm trying to be nice here. And when they left, you had some cleanup to do? How long does it take to clean heaven up after they get rid of this guy? It's probably some time, you know, make sure there's no demons lurking around because I'll tell you, they would want to stay, right? If you're a demon and you have access to heaven, you don't want to get locked out, so you're probably going to play hide-and-go-seek. Well, they got rid of all of them. So God's people in heaven praise God because God's judgment against evil is beginning to be enforced and the accuser of the brethren is out of there. Here's the principle. You have a personal enemy who is plotting your death. I know you're a nice person. Satan wants you dead. And you have a personal Savior who is protecting your life. Actually, a better way of saying it is you have a mighty enemy who is plotting your death and an almighty Savior who is protecting your life. So you need to know who's who. So this accuser who's accusing you before God of sin that you, righteous, you do commit, the Greek word is kathgoros, and as we mentioned, it's a legal battle. It's a legal, uh, formal charges are being made in heaven against you by the prosecuting attorney of heaven. Satan is the prosecuting attorney of heaven. And when he accuses you of sin, that's probably the only time he's telling the truth. Because you do sin, right? I do sin regularly. 
Satan is trying to persuade God to send us to hell with him for our sins, and we do deserve it, and that's true. But we have a defense attorney, yes? We have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ is our defense attorney. Here's the really, really good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has never lost a case before his Father's judgment seat. Hallelujah, amen, you got it. So Satan brings charges against us and Jesus defends us based on his perfect sacrifice for us. One of my favorite chapters in scripture, and I've got a lot of Romans 8. If you want to underline something that you need to remember, Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Verse 33. Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for us. He's our defense attorney. He's pleading our case, not based on the fact that we're sinless, based on the fact that his sacrifice has already paid our sin debt and we are debt free. What did he say on the cross, the last words? Tetelestai, it is finished. You know what that means in Greek? Paid in full. You have a zero balance for your sin on God's spiritual balance sheet. So Satan's accusations against God's people don't stick because Jesus has paid our sin debt already and we're forgiven. Verse 11. So that's what Jesus did. Now, here they're talking about saints, you and I, and they. And they overcame him, tribulation saints and us, because of what? Three things. The blood of the Lamb, and because of their, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life unto death. So here's the principle. Power to overcome Satan comes from the blood of the Lamb and from our obedience to God's Word. The blood of the Lamb. This is the foundation of our victory over Satan. It's not what we did. It's what Jesus did on the cross, paying our sin debt, providing we receive that and accept Him. People go, well, yeah, Jesus paid my sin debt. You know something? If you don't accept that, if you don't say, Jesus, I'm willing to accept your payment for my sin and ask for your forgiveness, you're going to stand before God for your own sins. That's not a good strategy because our sin is going to condemn us to hell. We need the blood of Jesus Christ to save us from sins. So at the cross, all of our sins were forgiven, past, present, and future, which means Jesus already knew how you were going to screw up this afternoon. And you will. And you will not surprise him. One of the things I love about serving Jesus is I never disappoint him. To disappoint Jesus, you've got to surprise him. You're not going to surprise him. Every sin you committed, past, present, future, already been paid for. That means that when Satan accuses you of sin that you did commit, Jesus says, paid for. I paid for that one. I paid for that one. I paid for that. It's paid. Zero balance. You are righteous in him. So Satan's accusations are ineffective. He's defeated, Hebrews 12, 4. So based on what Jesus has already done, there are two things that we can do that we are called to do to overcome Satan. Number one, you have the word of their testimony. There is power in the word of God if and only if we obey it, right? You know something? This book has power. Yes, it's the word of God. It's worthless if you don't know what it says and it's worthless if you don't do what it says. You know, this, you know who knows this book better than you do? Uh, does it help his behavior? And not at all. But he's got it memorized. He knows the whole thing. Greek, Hebrew, whatever it has. I mean, he knows all. But it hasn't done any good because he's not obedient to it. So when you know the truth of God's word, when you believe the truth of God's word, when you live out the truth of God's word, you know what you do? You put a muzzle on Satan. You shut him up. Because Satan says that Jesus doesn't change people. He's not necessary. He's not required. You can live your own life. You can get to heaven on your own. And when God's people live obedient Christian lives, you make Satan a liar. It's a pretty good outcome. Many of us in this room know people that the only Jesus they're going to know is you. They're not going to come to church. They're not going to turn and watch it on TV. If they don't see Jesus in you, they're not going to see Jesus, period. So the first way, based on Christ's finished work on the cross... Live out the truth you know. Know it and obey it. And the second one is, the second way you overcome Satan is you don't love your life even to death. Here's the principle. Power to overcome Satan comes from loving Jesus more than your life here on earth. And that is so easy to say. 
But when it comes time to live it, that's a whole different ballgame. What we're talking about here is an eternal value system. We're talking about understanding that physical death is not the end, right? For those of us that know Jesus, physical death is the beginning. It's the beginning of eternal life. And when you understand that, you value eternal life more than this life. How much longer do you have in this life? Well, we don't know, right? But it's shorter than you probably think. How many of you, how many of you think the last 10 years have gone by pretty fast? <laughs> you know something short of Alzheimer's, the next 10 are going to go by even quicker. And if you have Alzheimer's, you won't remember it. Right? So it's really going to go by, right? <clears throat> I think sometimes I'm kind of nudging right up to that, you know? So when you value the eternal more than the temporal and the heavenly more than the earthly and Jesus more than self, then you have a value system that says, this is not the be-all and end-all. My physical life on planet Earth is not the most important thing by any stretch. Because I'm leaving here. What did Matthew, Jesus told us in Matthew 16? Whoever wishes to save his life on Earth, I want to protect my life here, my physical life, all my goodies, I lose it eternally. So you got to choose. Whoever is willing to lose his life on earth, which means trade your days for the glory of Jesus, live for eternal purposes, guess what? You're going to find it. What you have is you have meaning and purpose, as Pastor talked about this morning, and you also have hope of heaven. Right? I have no idea how you age without the hope of heaven. I know people that don't know Jesus, and you know what happens when they get older? They get more bitter. Because all their good times are behind them. You know, when your body starts falling apart, if all your goodies are in this earthly life, when you get older, life is going to... I was going to say suck, but I, <laughs> I just said it, all right? It really will, because, you know, you're going, I can't taste food like I could. When I get out of bed, it creaks and groans, and sometimes it doesn't want to go right. You know the drill. We must maintain a perspective that says, yes, God gives me this physical life, but that's not the greatest gift at all. This is just a short period of time. Stay focused on heaven. Stay focused on heaven. Okay. Satan tempts us with the earthly things of this life. Doesn't he? How often does Satan tempt you with heaven? That's not on his temptation list. He's going to tempt you with the stuff of this life. And if you've got a value system that says, the stuff in this life is not my greatest good, knowing Jesus is, guess what? You reduce his ability to tempt you pretty dramatically. Because you have a perspective. You have a God's perspective at that point in time. Verse 12, for this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So here's the good news. Satan is expelled from heaven. Here's the bad news. Where is he living now? Yeah, he's the roommate of the people on earth, right? Because he's expelled from heaven. Heaven is happy because Satan's domain is shrinking. Going to shrink a whole lot more by the time we're done here at that point. Right? If you look at Satan's residences, he started out as heaven as prime minister. That's pretty good. Lost his position due to pride and due to mutiny. He didn't live in heaven, but he had access to heaven as well as the earth. Now, heaven is off limits. He's restricted the earth in this atmosphere. At the end of the tribulation, he's going to be bound in the abyss for a thousand years. At the end of that period of time, he's going to be released for a short period of time on planet Earth to lead a final rebellion, and then he's going to be confined to the lake of fire. Satan's world gets smaller, 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 smaller. That's what happens to sin. When you sin, you get lied to and you think, oh, sin means I can do whatever I want. You know what happens when you do that long enough? Your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and you're a slave to it. Only in Jesus do you have freedom. Now, they say, the scripture says, heaven says, praise God, he's not here anymore. Woe to the earth because what's coming? Hell on earth is coming. Have you thought about when this occurs, after this verse, every single demon in the universe, except those that are bound in everlasting chains, are where? Here. Here. 
First of all, Revelation 9 told us the fifth trumpet judgment, Satan was given the key to the abyss. That's the prison house of demons. And he was allowed to release all the demon locusts, remember, that came and tormented men for five months. They haven't left. They're still here. Several weeks ago, we talked about Revelation 9, 13, where Satan is given the key, or God commands four angels, rather, to release 200 million demons who are bound to the great river Euphrates to kill one-third of humanity. There's 200 million more demons on the planet. There's always been, since the fall of Adam, some demons who have free access to the planet, and we live with them today. You see their activity from time to time. And right now, heaven is completely cleansed of all demons, and they're all here. So with the exception of the ones that have been eternally bound forever, we've got a planet full of demonic enemies. These guys are going to work, by the way. If you want to go to Olive Drive to help them, go with them. They're going to work. Love you guys. So the good news, heaven is progressively being cleansed of sin. God is progressively cleansing his, his universe of sin. And the bad news is all of them are confined to planet Earth. So Earth is going to be hell. And what does it say at the end of that? <clears throat> How does Satan feel about that? Satan, verse, look at verse 12. Satan has great wrath. Why? Why is he so hot? How much time does he have left? About three and a half years. He's got three and a half years until the lake of fire. I mean, before the abyss. Apologize. So he knows God's word better than you do. And he actually believes God's word. But it doesn't influence his behavior. But he knows he's got three and a half years before he's confined to the abyss and then the lake of fire. Verse 13. How does Satan react when he sees his sphere of influence shrinking and shrinking and shrinking? Verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Remember that now his sphere of operations have been limited to earth, so he reprioritizes his strategy. He no longer can slander God in heaven, so he's going to slaughter God's people on planet earth. Remember what we said last week. Who is the woman? Israel. Israel is the woman that gave birth to the male child. Who's the male child? Messiah. Messiah, right? So Satan has been at war with Israel and Jesus from the beginning of Genesis 3. Now, it's very probable that Satan spends most of the three and a half years of the tribulation, the first half, laying the groundwork for his consolidation of power in the last three and a half years. We do know that Antichrist, we're going to talk about him next week, spends three and a half, or spends uh, the first part of the tribulation period, he signs a, a treaty agreement with Israel, beginning of the seven-year period. So if you want to know when the tribulation begins, it'll be the date that the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. That's the beginning. That's when God's clock on the tribulation starts ticking. We also know, we're going to talk about this later, halfway through that period of time, three and a half years, the Antichrist breaks the treaty with Israel. Sets up an idol of himself in the Holy of Holies. That's the abomination of desolation, Daniel. Commands everybody on planet Earth to worship that image or suffer death. Right? So we know that three and a half years he begins an assault on Israel. And it says he persecuted the woman. That's what we're talking about. The word persecute here means to hunt. To hunt down, to pursue to the death. So Satan's going to chase the Jewish people like a hunter trying to kill them. Jesus prophesied this in Matthew 24. What did he say? When, he's talking to Israel, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's the idol that Antichrist is going to set up in the Holy of Holies, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let those in Judea do what? Flee to the mountains. You know why you flee? Because you're going to be pursued, right? He's going to pursue you at that point. Remember he said, don't even go back into the house. If you're on the roof, don't even go down. If you're in the field, don't go to the house. Don't get travel clothes. Don't get your hiking boots on. Run with the clothes on your back because he's going to come after you instantly and furiously at that point in time. So we do know that God's plan is for all Israel to be saved. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on. Zechariah 12 commands that. Now Satan wants to prevent Israel's salvation. If he can kill them before they repent, where do they go? With him. Right? Which is one of his agendas. Verse 14. How does God respond? God doesn't respond. How did God plan from eternity past to deal with what he knew was going to happen, which is Satan going to war with Israel over the Messiah? Verse 14. This is God supernaturally responding. And two wings of a great eagle were given to the woman. 
in order that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. We know the serpent is Satan. We know the woman is Israel. Here's the principle. God protects and provides for his people in his way and his time. And I know you all know that. But I also know that sometimes life happens. And you say, God, now would be a good time to wake up from your nap. And come over here and take care of business because I am really under the gun. And I don't have a solution for this problem. Let me tell you, when Israel flees to the mountain, there is no human solution. And I know that some in this room, and I have been there myself, there are times when you face situations, there is no human solution for it, right? You've made all the phone calls, you've done all the counseling, you've talked to all the experts, nobody can fix it. You been there? You got one thing left to do, pray, pray. I remember talking to some, a friend of ours, Marin and I, friends, and this guy and his wife understand suffering as well as anybody I know. And I'm talking about a situation in my life. I said, what, do you, what would you counsel me to do? He looks at me. He says, pray. Pray. Can't you just give me something that's going to fit? Yeah, pray. Right? Pray means you surrender it to the lover of your soul, your heavenly father, who knows what you need before you ask it. Israel's in that situation now. They have no solution. They're using metaphor here, simile. This is obviously not a literal bird who's going to save them. This figurative language that conveys the idea of rescue and escape. In Exodus 19, remember they, God rescued him through the Red Sea from Pharaoh's army, and he tells Israel, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Anytime you see the word wings in the Bible, it almost always refers to divine protection and a flight to safety. Psalm 91 says, He will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. Now, they use the word eagle here because an eagle was the largest bird they knew at that period of time, the griffin. This is a, a picture of divine escape and divine protection. See, God has already prepared a way of escape for Israel and a place of escape for Israel. Once they got there, God says, I'm going to protect you and I'm going to provide you. I'm going to nourish you for three and a half years, the last half of the tribulation. I have read more articles telling me this is where that location is, where Israel is going to go. The truth of it is we don't really know where it is, but anytime you see wilderness mentioned in Scripture, it refers to land east of Jerusalem, which of course is modern day Jordan, the city of Petra is there. There's a number of places that have been postulated. It could be the place where Israel is going to go, according to Matthew 25, to flee the Antichrist who wants to kill him. So this is prophetic. None of this has happened yet. It's going to happen in the future. So God is going to protect them. Verse 15, Satan has another attack. The serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman that he might cause her to be swept away with a flood. Now, when they, anytime you see the word in Scripture, like, like, that's, that's figurative language, right? Like. They hear that word, it doesn't mean, oh, you got a big dragon with a big mouth full of water, and he's going to pour it out and try and drown him. It says, like a flood, okay? So it's figurative language denoting overwhelming military force. Generally, when you see flood in Scripture, it is destructive military force. So Satan is going to organize under Antichrist, as near as we can tell, a military force to go after Israel at this period of time. And just to, under a flood means I'm going to try and drown you. I'm going to try and destroy you. I'm going to try and kill you at that point in time. So Satan, the serpent, is going to try and destroy Israel with military force. And verse 16 says, And the earth helped the woman, the woman is Israel, the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Once again, this is figurative language. We do know that the military forces are thwarted, and we also know that God has used nature in the past to protect his people, has he not? He used a supernatural east wind to do what? Part the Red Sea so that defeat Israel's enemies, and, and he also used hailstones under Joshua to, to, uh, to defeat Israel's enemies at the Valley of Agilon at that point in time. So we do know God uses physical forces. 
God used the Red Sea to drown who? Pharaoh, when they were coming after Israel at that point in time. When Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, which were three characters who decided to oppose Moses' leadership, and they said, you know, God's spoken to us as well. What makes you such a big leader? You know, Israel should follow us. What did it say happened? It says, God sent an earthquake, opened the earth up, split the earth, swallowed them up, closed back up. Now, that would be something if you had an enemy you could do that to, right? You, open up. You know what the mafia used to say <clears throat> about their enemies? They would, they would put a command out to hit somebody and they would say, disappear them. Just disappear them. And I'm thinking, boy, if you could open the earth, that would really disappear them, right? Well, that's exactly what happened here. It's, in, it's intriguing to me that throughout this period of history, earthquakes are mentioned over and over and over and over. And many times they're called great earthquakes, right? Unusual. Highly probable that God is going to deal with the military invasion of Israel. They're going after him, trying to kill him by the Antichrist. And he simply sends an earthquake, opens the earth up, swallows up the military force. Highly probable. Verse 17. It says, the dragon, Satan, was enraged with Israel. You can imagine. And went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. You keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Folks, we could spend a whole lesson on this, but this is anti-Semitism at its core. Satan has hated Israel from the Garden of Eden forward as soon as he found out that Israel was the source of the Messiah. You cannot explain anti-Semitism if you neglect the spiritual dimension of it. It doesn't make any sense otherwise. And Satan is enraged that he can't seem to destroy Israel, so he's going to persecute their godly remnant which means anyone who follows Jesus is going to be his target, especially Jewish Christians. He's really going to go after them at this point in time. You will notice that all of Satan's attacks are thwarted. He's never successful in this chapter, is he? Every time he tries to do something, he fails. He fails. And it says Satan's getting angrier and angrier and angrier as he fails. Remember in verse 5 of this chapter, he tries to kill Jesus. How many times did you try and kill Jesus? Dozens. Did it succeed? Failed, right? In verse 9, he gets kicked out of heaven. I call that failure. You get expelled and you can't do anything about it, right? Verse 13 to 16, he spends a number of tactics here trying to attack Israel. She escapes to God's place of refuge. He sends a military force after her. The earth opens up and swallows the military force. He's foiled again. Verse 17 tells us he's very, very angry. He goes off to make war with believers. You know something? That will also fail. No matter what the enemy of God does, he will not succeed. But you must understand, the battle is not over until God decides, I'm done. I'm putting an end to sin. So we go back to our first point. Satan lost the war before he began it. Creatures do not topple creators, right? There's one creator, and he's all-powerful everywhere present, and no one's going to take God off his throne, and he ain't going to resign. You can't impeach him, right? He's God. He's on the throne. He will stay on the throne. He has allowed this war for his own purposes, for his own glory and our redemption, and Satan is stupid enough to keep fighting until God is going to put an end to it, and we're going to see that in subsequent chapters. But what you're seeing is the progressive limiting of Satan's sphere of influence. He's losing progressively, and he's getting angrier and angrier and angrier as he gets lost. So, first point, Satan's war against God was lost before it began, but he will keep fighting until God puts an end to sin. You have a mighty enemy who is plotting your death. Do not be naive about your enemy. Do not go to sleep here thinking that, well, he's not going to put a target on you. You already have a target on you. Come on. If you have the blood of the lamb, you've got a cross on you. You know something? That's meat. He loves that. He's going to go after you. Here's the good news. You have an almighty Savior protecting your life. Who's going to win that battle? That's pretty clear. You need to read Ephesians 6 so and get your armor on and keep it on. Because if you don't put it on, you know what's going to happen? You're going to come in here and that blood all over. Bandages. Oh, I didn't have my armor on. Keep your armor on, right? Next one, power to overcome Satan. You've got power to overcome Satan. It's grounded on what Jesus has already done. Satan is going to accuse you. You know one of the reasons ways Satan will accuse you? He'll try and make you feel guilty over past sin. 
Satan's really good at dredging that and going, remember when you did that? Remember when you did that? And you'll go, yeah, I did that. And he's going to say, you don't deserve God's love. You don't deserve God's grace. You're right. I don't deserve God's grace. You know what you say? Paid in full, schmuck. Right? It's paid in full. It's paid in full. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, past, present, and future. You are free. Do not go under the yoke of bondage and don't listen to them. Right? And one of the ways you do that is do what? Get in the Word. Get in the Word. Get in the Word and obey what you know. You have the truth. Obey the truth. What did Jesus say? If you know the truth, you obey the truth. He who keeps my word is my disciple indeed. And he who knows the word and obeys the word, the truth will set you free. So obey what you know. Last one. Power to overcome Satan comes from loving Jesus more than your life here on earth. If you've got an earthly value system and you value every little thing on this planet, Satan's got a hook into you to tempt you. Well, what happens if somebody doesn't like you? What happens if you lose the job? What happens if you don't have as much money? You know, blah, blah, blah. If you've got an eternal value system, you understand that your reward is not here. Where is your reward? In heaven. Your greatest reward here is you get to know Jesus now. See, for the people that don't know Jesus personally, they look at you and they go, it doesn't make any sense. I have people that don't know Jesus come to me and go, you put 10 hours a week, every week, studying into a class? You could be watching television. <laughs> really? I'm serious. They do. They don't understand the value system. I get to put 10 hours a week into getting to know Jesus, the God of the universe. You can actually get to know him? Well, I think I'm going to watch television. You're right. You see, they don't know. But once you know Jesus, you've got an eternal perspective. And you have power to overcome Satan when you love Jesus more than anything else. Lastly, God protects and provides for his people in his way and his time. And it won't be our way and it won't be our time. And there's times, and I know some of you are there right today, where you say, Brad, there is no solution. There is no human solution. There is always a divine solution. Always. All right. I love you guys. I really, really do. Next week. Uh, we'll be, Lord willing, in the next chapter. Read ahead, be thinking, be praying. Um, it's going to be an interesting week. Amen? All right. Because I love you, I tell you the truth. And now that you know the truth, do.